you have a Bible, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 21. In 1 Kings 21, we have the story of King Ahab and his lovely wife Jezebel callously taking the field that belonged to Naboth. Now, many of us will know this story. What happens in the story is that King Ahab covets the field that belonged to his neighbor Naboth. But when Naboth refuses to give Ahab the field, Ahab then proceeds to really pout about it until his wife Jezebel comes along. In verse 5, Jezebel has a plan. And central to the plan of Jezebel, we need to notice in verse 10, is the use of false testimony. Jezebel arranges for a false charge to be brought against Naboth, namely that Naboth had cursed both God and the king, so that Naboth would then be stoned to death, and Ahab and Jezebel could then seize his field. And that is precisely what happens. Verse 13 reports that in keeping with Jezebel's plan, the false testimony was brought against Naboth, And for the charge, the false charge of blasphemy, Naboth was put to death. And the royal couple got what they wanted. They got the field of Naboth. Now, friends, by my count, Ahab and Jezebel broke at least four of the ten words here. Possibly more, but at least four. They coveted the field in violation of the tenth word. They essentially stole the field in violation of the eighth word. They also murdered Naboth, breaking the sixth word, and they bore false witness against him, which is a violation of the ninth word. And the ninth word is the one we are exploring this morning. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. To quote Mark Rooker, The incident of Naboth's vineyard illustrates the serious nature of false testimony as well as its potentially tragic results. Yes, because of the the use of false testimony against him, Naboth ended up losing what? He ended up losing both his property and his life. The seriousness of false testimony. You shall not bear false witness against your Neighbor. Now, we begin our exploration of this ninth word by pointing out that it has both a narrow application and a wider application. A narrow application and a wider application. The narrow application of the ninth word has to do with legal testimony. It has to do with the kind of witness that a person would give in a court of law. And we will talk a little bit about that. But the wider application of the ninth word, as we're going to see a little later this morning, broadens out into the area of dishonesty and lying in general. But before we even get to those two applications of the commandment, we want to set the stage uh, with just a brief meditation 
on the nature of the God who issued the ninth word. Titus 1 verse 2 tells us that the God who spoke the ninth commandment is a God who never lies. He never lies. Numbers 23.19 agrees. It says that God is not a man that he should lie. So that the God who issued the ninth word, this, this word that prohibits false witness, he is a God, we need to understand, who himself is truth. As Al Mohler puts it, everything about God reflects absolute and undiluted truth. In him, in him, there is no lie. And because God is the truth in this way, it surprises us very little when we read in Proverbs 6.19 that he hates, is the word that's used there, he abominates a false witness who breathes out lies. It doesn't surprise us either when we read in Proverbs 12.22 that lying lips are an abomination or lying lips are detestable to the Lord. In Psalm 50, verse 21, we find there God is rebuking the liar. And in Proverbs 25, 18, God compares the person who bears false witness against a neighbor to a weapon that one would wield or use to kill somebody with. The false witness, it says, is like a club or a sword or a sharp arrow. Well, we, we read texts like the ones that we've just pointed out, and the picture starts to develop and become pretty clear that God really hates false witness and finds it dangerous for his human creatures to be engaging in. Now, just moments ago, we said that the ninth word has both a narrow application and a wider application. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We want to talk just for a few moments on the narrow application of the commandment, which has to do with truth-telling in the context of the court of law. So in its narrow context, the ninth word is addressing the problem of false accusation and or false testimony in a court of law. In modern terms, the problem that's being addressed in the ninth word is the problem of perjury. To commit perjury is to, to submit false or misleading testimony, misleading evidence against another person while you are under oath. In Canada today you can get up to 14 years in prison for committing perjury. And in my study this week, I noticed also that in the state of California, there's still a law on the books under which you can get either life in prison or the death penalty if by your perjury another person is convicted and executed. And then you are discovered as a perjurer. So by those sorts of penalties, we can see certainly that perjury or giving false testimony against a neighbor in a court of law is a very serious offense in our day 
Certainly it is, just as it was in ancient Israel. The penalty that God prescribed in ancient Israel for the offense of false witness against the neighbor was also serious, and it's laid out for us in Deuteronomy 19, and it's a very interesting penalty. So here's the case. Say you had not stolen a goat. But I come along with false testimony against you, and now you are accused of stealing the goat. Yes? Ah, very important. Jace, yep. Okay. So J64 PLC, uh, Nissan Kicks, is that the name of the, uh, the model? A white Nissan Kicks. It's to be towed uh, unless it's moved. J64 PLC. I see nobody moving. Okay, thank you, Rich. Appreciate that. So back to perjury. (laughs) (laughs) So you have not stolen a goat, but I come along with false testimony, and now you are accused of stealing the goat. If I am found out, so if it comes to light that I am committing perjury, giving false testimony against you to get you into a heap of legal trouble, then the penalty for me, for my perjury, would be be that I have to come up with a goat or the money that it costs to buy a goat. I would have to, uh, in real life I would have to, Uh, give what I am falsely accusing you of taking. In the words of David Baker, if the witness proves to be false, he suffers the punishment the accused would have suffered if proved guilty. That's the penalty in Deuteronomy 19, and it's very fascinating. And according to that same Deuteronomy text, the the effect that this punishment was to have was to both cleanse the community of evil and to act also as a deterrent to others who might be considering um, offering false testimony. So from this we understand, as we read this text, we understand that God takes false testimony against a neighbor very seriously. God takes very seriously the things that go on in a legal setting. Lying in the setting of the court can be an incredibly costly thing. Potentially, a lying witness can cost someone his or her life, as was the case with Naboth. And in the setting of ancient Israel, where there were no cameras mounted on every street uh, to record crimes, where there was no DNA evidence uh, to secure convictions, the word of a witness or the word of witnesses in the court was of great importance and was often decisive in a case. Witnesses were fully expected to tell the truth in civil and criminal trials. They had the responsibility, witnesses did, to be honest in their reporting so that the judges could then render uh, a fair decision, the best decision. After all, again, someone's life normally depended on the testimony of witnesses. While the importance of honesty in the courts 
not only in ancient Israel, but also in our day, I think is summed up pretty well by J.V. Fesco. Fesco says this, Honesty in court dealings was absolutely necessary to maintain order in Israel as well as in any society. He says, if the courts are corrupt, there can be no justice, and without justice, there will be no peace. Now, friends, the seriousness with which God takes truthful witness is also seen in this. In the fact, listen, that it was the witnesses in capital cases where somebody was sentenced to death, it was the witnesses who were commanded to initiate the process of the death penalty itself. In the case where a person received the death penalty, Deuteronomy 17.7 says, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. So that your condemning witness against a person in a capital case better be the whole truth and nothing but the truth. By your witness, you are commending the sentence of death for that person, and you yourself as a witness will have to initiate the death penalty. So your witness had better be true, and it had better not be false. Truthful witness in a legal setting is taken so very, very seriously in the Scriptures. For ancient Israel, truthful witness was of paramount importance because Israel's God was true. Their witness to the nations of who God was would either be a God-glorifying witness through their practice of truthful testimony, or it would be a damaging witness to their God if they chose to practice false witness. But now, as we mentioned at the beginning today, the ninth word also has a wider application along with that narrower application of the commandment in a legal setting. And here's where it gets more personal for you and I. How do we know it has a wider application, first of all? Well, the wider application of the commandment can be seen when we look at a text like Hosea 4, verses 1 and 2. So notice what happens in this passage, Hosea 4, verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, God says that he has a controversy with Israel, with his people. And then in verse 2, God lists, notice, he lists several sins that the people are guilty of. Namely, swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. Do those sins sound familiar? All of those sins are direct references to the issues that come up in the ten words. And lying, in verse 2, is most likely a reference to our commandment this morning, to the ninth commandment. So we can deduce from this that the ninth word of the ten words, in general terms, is about lying. Lying is the wider issue that is being addressed in the ninth word. And in addition to the Hosea passage, we also have Leviticus 19, verses 11 and 12, where in verse 12, there is a prohibition against swearing falsely by God's name. That sounds an awful lot like what's being prohibited, prohibited in the ninth word. But notice in that passage that swearing falsely is mentioned 
in the same neighborhood, in the same context as lying and dealing falsely with another person. So that again, since lying and deceit are mentioned in the same breath as swearing falsely, we can deduce that the ninth word covers lying in general, not just false witness and and testimony in the context of the court. So then we need to talk a little bit about the concept of lying. A decent definition of what a lie is, is given to us by John Frame in his discussion of the Ninth Commandment. Frame says, A lie is a word or act that intentionally deceives a neighbor in order to hurt him or her. Again, a lie is a word or act that intentionally deceives a neighbor in order to hurt him or her. Now, I would perhaps nuance Frame's definition just a little bit. Toward the end of his definition, he says that a lie is uttered in order to hurt a neighbor. Now, that may indeed be true, but I would add that people lie. Why do people lie? Why do I lie? Why do you lie? People lie often in order to bring benefit to themselves as well. Correct? For example, people lie in order to get the benefit of avoiding punishment. Or people lie in order to save face. Or people lie in order to gain something financial or something material. Or people lie in order to win an argument. So there's the idea of personal benefit also uh, that is sought when we lie to another person or persons. I think everyone would agree that in general terms, the damage that lying does is that it breeds mistrust. If I lie to you about something and then you find out that I've lied, you trust me less than you did before. If the courts are known to have a hard time weeding out false witnesses, if the courts become places that are known to be places where there's lots of lying that's taking place, then our trust in the whole justice system is greatly diminished. Lying breeds mistrust amongst people. So the ninth word prohibits lying. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. False witness breeds mistrust. But now, friends, a very interesting question for us to grapple with this morning. As we consider the ninth word is this question. What exactly constitutes a lie? Or another way to ask the question is, are there some situations where deception is okay? Where it's permitted? Think about this with me. If you came to church this morning, and as you took your coat off, you said to me, Oh, Pastor, it took me forever to get here this morning because of the traffic. Should I, in that moment, charge you with breaking the Ninth Commandment? Because, after all, technically speaking, it did not take you forever 
to get to church. It may have taken you longer than normal, but certainly not forever. And when you said forever, well, technically you told an untruth. Well, I think that most of us would agree that it would be complete nonsense for me to charge you with lying in that instance because we, we use those kinds of hyperbolic conventions in our speech all the time and it's accepted by everybody as being completely normal and being completely okay. Again, our question, what precisely constitutes a lie? Is it a completely black and white matter, or are there some gray areas? What about this situation? You go on a two-day vacation, and you leave the lights on in your home to deceive people into thinking that someone is home when actually there's nobody home. Does that classify as breaking the ninth commandment? Presenting something untrue as if it were true. Again, I trust that all of us would agree that it is advisable, in fact, to leave a light on in your house while you're away to make it look like somebody's home. Uh, otherwise, somebody's going to come in and break another commandment by stealing, right? <laughs> so the point is, we start to see that maybe deception in certain, certain circumstances is allowed and, dare I say, even advisable. Other examples... If you go to see an action movie and there's tons of CGI, computer-generated special effects, are you going to walk out of the theater in that moment in a huff, mumbling about how the movie producer broke the Ninth Commandment by deceiving you into thinking that the explosions and alien creatures were real when in fact they were not? Well, of course you're not going to do that, right? Everybody expects that particular sort of deception when they see an action movie. It is completely acceptable. Or how about when you play football, if you play football? <laughs> Not everybody plays football. But if you play football, you run a quarterback sneak or a fake handoff. The offense purposely tries to deceive the other team's defense. Or hockey. You have a breakaway, and you make it look as if you're going to shoot with the forehand, and the last second you shoot with the backhand in an effort to try and score. Or baseball, stealing bases. Are these things considered to be a breaking of the Ninth Commandment? Again, most of us would say no. In sports and in board games, chess, deception is part of the game. Right? It is expected, it is conventional, it is part of the fun. The question we're getting at here has to do with the parameters of the Ninth Commandment. Is deception ever allowed? Is it sometimes acceptable? As we've seen here, perhaps the answer is yes, it is sometimes allowed. Deception in some circumstances, some circumstances, gets a pass 
but only in certain circumstances. The general rule, and this is important, the general rule remains we must seek to be keepers of the ninth word, even if we admit some exceptions in life where deception is acceptable. Now, what gets really interesting is when we turn to the pages of Scripture and we see in several places, several places, that deception is not only practiced by the people in the Bible, it also is not condemned by God or by the person who is narrating the story. In fact, sometimes the deceitful conduct of people is commended. And sometimes God himself, listen, God himself authorizes the deception that people practice. I'll give you seven different examples. Originally in this sermon I had about 12, but I thought, no, it's too long, so I whittled it down. (laughs) So in Exodus 1, the Hebrew midwives refuse to obey the order of Pharaoh, and in the process they mislead Pharaoh, and significantly in Exodus 1.20, which follows on the heels of that incident, it says that God dealt well with those deceitful midwives. Second example, in Joshua 2, the prostitute Rahab not only conceals the spies, she also lies to the posse who had come after the spies And significantly, both Hebrews 11.31 and James 2.25 commend Rahab for her involvement with the spies. Third example, as 1 Samuel chapter 16 opens, God authorizes Samuel to tell Jesse a partial truth. Not the whole truth. In the interests of protecting Samuel from Saul. Fourth example. In 1 Samuel 27 verse 10, we have David lying through his teeth to Achish. And again, there is no condemnation of David's deceit in that instance. We could also add, I don't have it down here, but David faked being insane at one point, right, deceit, and the other people bought it, and he got out of a situation as the seed of the woman who went on to do great things in the kingdom. Fifth example, fifth, in 2 Samuel 15.34, David counsels Hashai to go lie to Absalom. Again, no condemnation of David's action there. Sixth, In 2 Kings 22, verses 19 through 23, this is an interesting one, friends. God authorizes a lying spirit to be sent to Ahab. And then the seventh and final example is in the New Testament in 2 Thessalonians 2.11, 
where God sends a powerful delusion so that his enemies will believe a lie. So what do we do with all these texts? And again, there are several more that I didn't mention. All these texts where people practice deception and are sometimes commended for it, while at the same time we have the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What do we do? Well, the first thing to say is this. On December 6th, 1941, which was the day before the attack on Pearl Harbor, did the Japanese Air Force make sure to contact the Americans and say, oh, by the way, we're planning to launch a major attack on you tomorrow at Pearl Harbor. Uh, you might want to prepare for it. Of course they didn't do that because it was wartime. In wartime, you bank on your ability to launch surprise offensives. And you bank on your ability to outwit your opponent. And you bank on your ability, in many cases, to deceive your opponent. In wartime, it would make no sense to tell the truth to your opponent, you would lose the war. Well, friends, in every single example from the Bible that we just gave, it was wartime. In Exodus chapter 1, in that example, Pharaoh was the enemy of God's people, warring against God's people, and the Hebrew midwives deceived that enemy, and so they should have, because it was wartime. Rahab hid the spies from the enemy king of Jericho and lied to his henchmen, and so she should have, because it was wartime. When God commanded Samuel to give the partial truth to Jesse, it was in the interest of fighting against Saul, who was already God's enemy at that point in the story. God was already warring against Saul, and so on and so forth through all seven examples. As John Frame has pointed out, all of those biblical examples have to do, listen, with the promotion of justice against the wicked. Justice against the Saul's and the Absaloms and the Pharaoh's and the Ahab's and the Canaanites. And therefore, deception in those cases was justified because it was wartime. To focus again on the case of the Hebrew midwives, Pharaoh was bloodthirsty for innocent lives. He wanted to kill male Hebrew babies. The deception that the midwives practiced against him in that situation was certainly justified. Now, if we want to say that, well, even so, the midwives broke the ninth word by deceiving Pharaoh then we must also say, yes, but the higher law that they obeyed was life and love concerning the babies. The point is that sometimes 
in exceptional circumstances, and I want to stress that, in exceptional circumstances, for instance, in a case where life can be preserved by practicing deception or by concealing the truth, then life must win out over truth-telling. And of course, the classic example from 75 years ago is the case of Nazi SS officials showing up at your door and you're hiding Jewish people in your home and the SS officers ask you if, you are, if you're hiding Jews. What will you say? If you keep silent, it's a bad choice because your silence will be taken as an open invitation for them to come in and search. You have to answer. If you say to them, yes, I'm hiding Jews, then you've just told the truth, but now you've essentially condemned those who are hiding to their deaths at the hands of the Nazis. You've been complicit in that instance of breaking the sixth commandment about murder. On the other hand, if you say, no, I'm not hiding any Jewish people, you've then lied. Technically, you've broken the ninth commandment. But if the officers go away at that moment, you have succeeded in preserving life. I think, and I'm certainly not alone in this conclusion, I think that in that particular situation, the obligation of the Christian would be to lie to the SS officers. Why? Because the preservation of life wins out in that particular circumstance over truth-telling. Telling untruths is evil, to be sure. But we can say that in that difficult circumstance, it is a lesser evil than giving people up to be murdered, which is a far greater evil. Now, friends, in all of this, we have to be very, very careful and clear. We have been talking here about giving false witness, lying in exceptional circumstances, right? Circumstances where a moral obligation would take precedence over truth-telling. These are rare cases. In general, the ninth word of the ten words applies to the vast majority of your life and my life. 99.9% of the time, we shall not bear false witness against our neighbor. So please, don't take our discussion about exceptions to the rule as any sort of license to go out and lie more. Don't take it as a justification to lie. Your obligation and my obligation in our everyday lives is to seek obedience to the ninth word. To be truth tellers and not liars or false witnesses. What's our problem? Our problem, according to Jesus in Matthew 15, 19, is that false witness, it's right there in the text, false witness is something that proceeds out of our fallen hearts. Your heart and my heart, 
And we don't have to look very far in this world to see the evidence of false witness and to see the damage that it brings. Our world is chock full, isn't it, of false accusations, of libelous comments, of slander, just go online, hearsay, gossip, malicious rumors, perjury, attempts to bring damage to another person's reputation, saying something to somebody's face and behind the scenes saying something completely different. All of that, and all of it comes from where? It comes out of the fallen human heart. And Jesus says that this sort of stuff defiles the person who practices it, which is all of us. We need help. Because each and every one of us, in our own way or in our own ways, has broken the ninth word. We have been gossips. We have been liars and slanderers. And we have not guarded our, our neighbor's reputation as we ought. The good news. Are you ready for the good news? The good news is that Jesus who is called what? The faithful witness. Jesus, the faithful witness, died on behalf of false witnesses. Every false witness, every perjurer, every slanderer, every gossip, every liar who repents and stakes his or her life on Jesus Christ and Him crucified will be forgiven and will be saved. Jesus died for false witnesses. Jesus knew, knew, knew no sin, but was made sin on the cross so that you and I could go free. Jesus is himself the truth, according to John 14.6. He is the truth. No false witness there. He is the truth. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. We could put it that way. He is, according to John 1.14, he is full of brimming with truth. Truth comes through him, as it says in John 1.17. There is no deceit to be found in the mouth of Messiah Jesus, according to Isaiah 53.9. In John 18.37, Jesus said that the purpose he was born... Christmas time's coming. The purpose he was born, purpose of the manger, the purpose he came into the world, he says, was to do what? To bear witness to what? The truth. Revelation 1.5 is where we have him called the faithful witness. With Jesus, friends, we are dealing with the only human being who perfectly, utterly kept the ninth word. And the righteousness of Jesus given to the believer, is what God sees when he looks on the believer. Jesus is in the business of restoring false witnesses so that they become truth-tellers. We see him doing it with Peter, who three times bore false witness about Jesus. And Jesus comes along and restores Peter, and he can do that with us as well. Jesus says to us, this morning he says this to us, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
Jesus sends us his spirit who is called what? The spirit of what? Truth. The spirit of truth. And he guides us into all truth. The spirit confirms and illuminates the truth about Jesus to the believer, to our hearts and minds. So that the church of Jesus Christ, and then I'm done, the church of Jesus Christ, that's you and I if we are believers, the church becomes a truth-telling community. As Al Mohler has put it, local churches become like islands of truth in an ocean of lies. Local churches, an island of truth in an ocean of lies. As the church, we must contrast the world. Amen? As Ephesians 4.25 says, we in the church do what? We put away falsehood and speak what? Speak the truth with our neighbors. As believers, we don't bear false witness against our neighbors like the world does. As the community of Jesus Christ, we are known for the fact that we speak the truth to our neighbors. Around the church... What do we do? We build one another up with our tongues. Instead of defaming one another, gossiping about one another, slandering one another, and spreading rumors about one another. We battle against deceit. It's a battle. Against untruth-telling. As the church, we love truth. Amen? We love truth. We uphold the truth. We witness to the truth of Jesus. Jesus, who is the truth, calls the church his witnesses. You shall bear true witness to your neighbor. And witness has to do not only with what we say, but with how we live our lives. So May God help us this week to not be ashamed to testify to the truth of Jesus. May we be true witnesses to his his faithfulness, to his goodness, to his saving power, to his strength. And may God lead us not into the temptations of Satan, who is the ultimate false witness and the father of lies. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again we see that these little, often very brief commandments in your word blossom out and flower out into the New Testament and become directly applicable to our lives. We thank you that your spirit has been here with us this morning, speaking to us, grabbing our shoulders, redirecting us, counseling us. And I pray for every one of us, Lord, as we go out of this place, may we pause the next time we are tempted to bear false witness and tell a lie. Lord, we do it so much and we need your redeeming power and help uh, to get out of the shackles of bearing false witness and lying. Lord, help us, we pray this week in Jesus' name. May God's grace and mercy follow, follow you wherever you go and whatever you do. May Jesus' teachings and redeeming love give you a disciplined, holy life. May the Holy Spirit's presence give you joy in serving others and being a light in this world's darkness. Go in peace.